Some words that are found in Revelation chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. It's the last part of verse 16 and the first part of verse 17. It's speaking, of course, of those who are in glory, the inhabitants of heaven. It says, Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. There are many wonderful things that could be spoken concerning heaven. And you will find often that the emphasis of Scripture is upon not so much what is in heaven, as far as rewards and blessings are concerned, but rather the absence of certain things. For example, as we hope to study later on, you can look at the no mores of heaven. There are, toward the end of the book of Revelation, a number of things that are stated concerning heaven in a negative sense. There's no more sorrow. There's no more pain. There's no more sea. There's no more curse, and so on. Those sad things, those even sinful things which are done away with, there's no more of that in heaven, thank the Lord. But there are three examples of negatives, if you like, things that are not found in heaven that are recorded here in verses 16 and 17. One of them we noticed last time, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. There's no more hunger and there's no more thirst. But then it says, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. And then thirdly, at the end of verse 17, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There's no hunger or thirst, there's no blistering heat, and there are no tears in heaven. Great comfort may be gleaned by considering the absence of these things that are sad realities for men and women in this life. Because even physically there are many people who hunger and thirst. There are many people who are affected badly by heat and by the sun. And there are a lot of tears. But the first one that we noted as we talked about the satisfaction of heaven was that there will be no hunger or thirst anymore. Not only will the natural desires of physical hunger and thirst be a thing of the past, but all spiritual hungering and thirsting will be a thing of the past as well. We'll be fully satisfied. Heaven is a place of everlasting satisfaction. No one will ever say in heaven, is this all there is? Because they'll be eternally and fully content. But we should also note that heaven is a place of eternal security. And this is really the theme that I want to dwell upon today. It says of those in glory that the sun will not light on them or any heat. We'll explain what that means in a moment. It also tells us that the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them. This theme that's brought before us is really a theme of the security and the supply of heaven. Let's look at both of those. First of all, I want you to think about a shelter which covers 
the redeemed in glory. There is a shelter which covers the redeemed in heaven. The inhabitants of glory are protected and they are covered by the Lord himself forever. Now this particular statement that they will not suffer the sun to light on them nor any heat is another way of saying that no harm can come to redeemed souls who dwell in heaven. The analogy that's employed here is that of the strong eastern sun and of the devastating effects of excessive heat. I remember very well my father's first visit to the United States. He came with us to Iowa way back in 1983. And if he thought that the sun got warm in Northern Ireland by times, he really didn't know how warm the sun really can get. Because in the middle of the summer in the Midwest, in Iowa, the sun is brutal. The heat is excessive. The corn loves it. People don't like it because there's heat and there's humidity. So the heat index is regularly up around 100 and above. And when you're living in a climate that normally is, if it's a really nice summer, high 60s, maybe it's creeping into the excessive heat of the 70s, that is a shock to your system. I remember very well my father thinking, oh, I'm going to go out and go for a walk in the sunshine. Boy, did he learn very quickly that five or ten minutes under that sun is more than enough. It was so hot, it was dangerous. Now, when it says here, the sun shall not light on them, nor any heat, you have to understand the context. The Bible is an Eastern book. And it's not talking about a little bit of watery sunshine here. It's talking about the full rays of the eastern sun. It's speaking about brutal, scorching heat. That's the word, actually, that is employed in the Greek. The idea is of scorching heat, dangerous heat. The devastating effects of excessive heat. That's what's here. Now, you and I know that the light and the rays of the sun... The physical sun can be so beneficial. I'm told, though I'm not an expert in these things, but there's vitamin E in sunshine. It's good to get out into the sun in a limited way. We all know that there's physical warmth from the sun when it's shining. People feel better when they're exposed to the light and the heat of the sun, as long as it's not excessive. And many, like myself from cooler and cloudier climates would love to go on a vacation to sunnier climes. People in Northern Ireland and in the west of Scotland are very fond of taking vacations in places like the south of Spain, the Mediterranean, the south of France, because they're guaranteed sunshine. Instead of staying at home where they're pretty much guaranteed rain and cool weather most of the time. You know, studies have been done on the depressive effects of living in areas with little sunlight. In Scandinavian countries, for example, in northern Norway, the winter means almost 24 hours of darkness. Can you imagine that? The sun never comes up. 
So people sit under special bright lamps or lights. That's a fact. You can look it up. There are crops that cannot grow well without the light and the heat of the sun. Again, referencing my father, he was greatly taken with the fact that I could grow tomatoes outside. I mean, without any glass house, without any hot house, just right there outside. Oh, he would have loved that, because where we're from, you have to have a greenhouse, glass house, otherwise they don't grow. People can only dream of growing the kind of sweet corn that they grow here. You could only do that if you're in some sort of a glass house. There's not enough heat. The season is too short. There are benefits from the sunshine. Crops that cannot grow well without the light and the heat of the sun. But we also know that the sun can be a source of danger, of great destruction, and of death. We have been able to think of the devastating power of the sun many times in the light of physical disasters. The devastating power of the sun. Just think about it on a personal level. If you've ever had sun poisoning, it's terrible. I remember one time I stayed out too long in the sun with my shirt off. I got sun poisoning and I felt like there were all these little creepy crawlies running up and down my back. It was unbelievable. It was painful. It was itchy. It was terrible. But there are people who suffer sunstroke. People get skin cancer, melanomas through the power of the sun. Drought, fires, parched fields and crops. They are the result of excessive heat. Yes, there are great benefits from the sunlight and from the heat. Solar energy, for example, though I think that's overplayed a little bit. But there are benefits to having solar energy. You can produce your own electricity. But the devastation and the destruction caused by the sun's heat is obvious. You see this in certain countries where famine is common. Places like Ethiopia, Sudan, other very warm countries. The, the, the heat of the sun, the scorching heat, is devastating. And every year, even in our own country, sadly, children and animals perish from heat inside vehicles when stupid people leave their children and their animals inside a hot car. Now the Bible refers to this devastating potential of the sun and the scorching heat in a number of places. Turn with me, for example, to Psalm 121. And it's spoken here in a positive way where the Lord is speaking of his great protection of his people. But it says there, Psalm 121, verses 5 and 6, The Lord is thy keeper, the Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord is thy shade. You know what it's like when the temperature is really hot. It's nice to get into the shade. And quite often the difference between being in direct sunlight and being in the shade is unbelievable how much the temperature drops. 
Again, if you think of the verses in Isaiah chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the Bible there says, And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. And there shall be a tabernacle or a tent for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a covert from storm and from rain. So there the Lord references references this. A shadow or a shade in the daytime from the heat. And again, don't we remember the incident involving Jonah? Where he's sitting down to see what will become of the city. We read about it in Jonah chapter 4. The Bible clearly tells us that Jonah went out of the city. He sat on the east side of the city. There he made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. So there's this big plant that grows right over Jonah and protects him from the sunlight, from the direct rays of that hot eastern sun. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd that it withered and it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. So this illustrates what I'm talking about. The danger that there is, the devastating effects of the power of the sun But heaven is a place where the sun will not light on them. Literally, it means it will not strike them. It will not beat down upon them. Nor any heat. Literally, the Greek is scorching heat. So those who are in glory don't have to be concerned about the sun striking them, beating down upon them, nor any scorching heat being upon them. Now what is this talking about? Is it just referring to natural sunlight, just natural heat? Personally, I believe this is speaking about the wrath of God, which will never fall upon the head of the redeemed. This is what God wants us to learn about heaven. When you go back to the Old Testament again, to Isaiah chapter 25, You'll find there, Isaiah 25, verses 4 and 5, that he says to the Lord, For thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm. And notice this, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Thou shalt bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place. Even the heat with the shadow of a cloud, the branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. Again, you see here, there is this analogy between the heat and the wrath of God. This is a New Testament theme as well in Revelation chapter 16. The Word of God records in verses 8 and 9 these words. Revelation 
chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. There's that scorching heat. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. The heat, the blasting of the sun is synonymous with the wrath of God. And right here in this passage, it's connected with it. Notice how scorching heat is often associated with the wrath and anger of God in the Scriptures. What do you think about when you think about the subject of hell? Hellfire. All the nations that are wicked, the Bible says, the wicked shall be cast into hell, and all the nations that forget God. Hell in Scripture is spoken of in connection with devastating heat. Let me show you a few scriptures, Old and New Testament. Isaiah chapter 33, verse number 14. And if you can't turn them up as quickly as I do, don't worry about it. Just make a note of it and you'll see them later on. But I'm quoting them anyway. Isaiah chapter 30. Sorry, 33. And verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Fire, devouring fire, everlasting burnings. Doesn't our Lord refer to hell in that way? Several times in Mark's gospel, repeatedly, he talked about being cast into hell fire. Into the fire that shall never be quenched. We read in the little epistle of Jude, toward the end of the New Testament, in verse number 7, again about the wrath of God. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, watch this, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Eternal fire. Fire that is everlasting. Or as it is there in Isaiah thirty-three fourteen, everlasting burnings. You'll find this as well in Revelation chapter 20. This fearful warning about the consequences of unbelief. Where it says that those who were not written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. You find that in Revelation 20 in the last two verses. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. God's wrath, his righteous anger, his indignation against sin is symbolized and typified by fire and heat. That's what we're to understand by this. There's an Old Testament minor prophet called Nahum. 
And in the book of Nahum, the Bible says in chapter 1, verse 6, Who can stand before his indignation? That's the Lord's indignation. And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. I don't think I need to give you any more scriptures to prove this fact. That the wrath of God is typified by the blazing sun and the scorching heat. But you see, the glorified saints have nothing of this kind to fear. Those who are in glory have nothing to fear from God's wrath, his righteous anger, and his indignation against sin. The burning heat of God's wrath will never come upon them. Why? Well, because there's not only here the devastating power of the sun reference, but the delightful provision of the shade. See, the burning heat of God's wrath will never come upon the head of those who are in glory. Because, as the hymn writer said, the wrath of God that was our due upon the Lamb was laid, and by the shedding of his blood the debt for us was paid. The believer has been saved from God's fiery judgment and indignation because his sins have already been laid upon Christ and judged in him. This is the heart of the gospel. Christ is described in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2 as the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation has to do with the mercy seat. In the tabernacle of old and later in the temple, there was that which was called the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was a lid. And that lid was referred to as the propitiatory or the mercy seat. Because the priest, when he would come in behind the veil on that one day per year in the Day of Atonement with the blood, he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat, signifying that this is that which turns away the wrath of God. The mercy seat or the propitiatory is that which contains the sprinkled blood. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. It's the blood that turns away the wrath of God. And this is why in the New Testament, when you have the Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector in the temple, and they're both praying, the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you look at that in the original language, the the Greek, it literally means, God, be propitious toward me. At that very moment, he was in the temple. At that very moment, the offering was being made and the blood was being sprinkled on the mercy seat. And that man was looking to the mercy seat and he's saying, Lord, be propitious toward me. Take away my sins on the ground of the shed blood. That's what's signified there. See, it's the blood of Christ shed for our sins that turns away the wrath of a sin-hating God. His sacrifice is a propitiatory sacrifice. I know propitiation is a big word, but it has a very simple meaning. It means a sacrifice 
that's rendered to God to satisfy his wrath against sin. And that's what Christ has done. He's taken responsibility for my sins. He suffered for my sins. The wrath of God that was due to me was poured out on him. And he turned that wrath away. As Spurgeon said, with one almighty draught, Christ drank damnation dry for me. Jehovah bade his sword awake. It fell, O Christ, on thee. Thy blood the flaming sword must slake. And thank God we can say it was for me that that was done. He's the propitiation for our sins. Wrath has been turned away by a propitiatory sacrifice. That's why it says of those in heaven, the sun shall not strike them, it will not smite upon them, nor any scorching heat. They'll never know what it is to experience the wrath of God. They're sheltered from it. They're they're in the shadow of God. They're hiding in Christ. This is why Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. There is no wrath. It has all been consumed by Christ. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Now, there is no sword for me. Jesus is the shade under which we hide. And those who are in heaven enjoy a purchased security. Now the Bible says of the Lord Jesus back there in Isaiah 32. And verse number 2. It is speaking of him prophetically. And a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind... And a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, look at this, as the shadow, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. This is why we can sing as believers, thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. His shadow is over us. There's a delightful provision of the shade. And we go back again there to the verses we read a few minutes ago in Psalm 121. Listen to these words again. Beautiful words they are in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day nor the moon by night. He is the delightful shade. Notice that the shade is the Lord himself. He comes in between us and the scorching heat. This is what Christ has done. He has inserted himself between the wrath of God and us. Someone wrote, Here we glimpse something of the divine security of heaven. A security wrought on Calvary's cross, where Christ went through the fires of judgment to deliver the believer from hell's fires to the land where the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And thank God, even here below, where we anticipate heaven, we're safe and secure when we believe from the wrath of a sin-hating God. We're getting practiced up for heaven because we're now safe. And those who are in heaven, 
They're safe. But they're not more secure than we are, if we're believers. Because the wrath of a sin-hating God has been turned away from us. But heaven is the ultimate, isn't it? It's the ultimate. Because we're shaded not only from the consequences of sin, but from the very presence of sin itself. Think about that. When you're in glory, you'll never have to be grieved over the sins of others, nor even about your own sins. Because you're in a place where there is no sin. This is the first thing that we notice here in this portion. As we talk about heaven, we can refer to the shelter that covers the redeemed. But then in verse 17, in the first part, we have this beautiful statement. For, and of course that connects us with what came before. For, here's the reason why. Here's the reason why the sun will not light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb, there's that beautiful title that's found about 20, 22 times in the book of Revelation. More than any other book in the Bible. For the Lamb, the sacrifice which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. Literally, in the Greek language, this means he will be their shepherd. Because that's what a shepherd is. The Lord is my shepherd literally means the Lord is my feeder. Or the Lord is my pastor. The Lord is my pastor. The Lord is the one who feeds me. Pastors of the church on earth are just under shepherds. But he is the shepherd. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Here's one who is their shepherd on the earth. And he's still their shepherd in glory. He's still their shepherd. It's so interesting to observe that the lamb in the Bible, which brings up the thought of sacrifice for sin, because the lamb was killed, the lamb's blood was shed. The lamb is also the shepherd of the sheep. Isn't that interesting? He's both the lamb and the shepherd. And as we noted in earlier messages, the shepherd theme is prominent in the Bible. As it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the great shepherd. And we did spend some time developing that theme of the good shepherd who giveth his life for the sheep, the great shepherd who rose from the dead, and the chief shepherd who shall appear and give the crown of glory. We learn from Psalm 23 the importance of that personal relationship of the sheep with the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. It doesn't say the Lord is our shepherd. Notice that. The psalmist here brings it right down to the individual level. And I love that. The Lord is my shepherd. He leadeth me, O blessed thought. O words with heavenly comfort fraught. Where'er I go, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. He leadeth me. He leadeth me. By his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be. For by his hand he leadeth me. The Lord is my shepherd. Can you say that? Never rest until you can. Never rest until you can say the Lord is my shepherd. He's not just God. He's my God. He's not just a shepherd or even the shepherd. He's my shepherd. The hymn that my wife loves so much. Now I belong to Jesus Jesus belongs to me. 
Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. There's that personal relationship of the sheep to the shepherd. But we see this also developed in other scriptures. Look with me at Psalm 95 and verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. He's the shepherd. And we can rejoice in that truth. He becomes the shepherd to the believer, of course, in time. And this is a really important thing for us to consider. People are saved in time. I've heard some in the reform camp try to say that there was never a time when the believer was lost. I beg to differ. God deals with us in terms of time as well as eternity. And those he chose from eternity become believers not in eternity but in time. There's a moment in time when you enter in to what Christ did at the cross by faith. That's why Jesus said, come unto me. There's something that has to happen in time when you're upon the earth. And that's the day and that's the hour when you trust in his saving work. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved That's something that happens in time. And when that happens, there's joy in heaven. Sometimes people will say to me, and have said even in recent days to me, surely those that are in heaven can't really know what's happening on the earth, can they? Because they'd be too upset with all the sad things. No, I don't agree with that. Because those that are in heaven now see things as God sees them. God is not, quote-unquote, upset to the point that he loses his mind, if I could put it that way reverently, because of things that happen on the earth. God sees the evil and the good. So why wouldn't those who are in heaven with him also be able to witness the evil and the good? Think about the good. The parable in Luke 15 is of the lost sheep. There are three parables there, but... The Lord, in dealing with that subject, says on a couple of occasions here, in verse 7 and in verse 10 of Luke 15, in regard to the woman who lost the coin and she found it, it speaks about that. And it says that, well, let's go in order here. First of all, it's the lost sheep. He goes out after the sheep. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now watch this. Luke 15, verse 6. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. Okay, so here's the shepherd. He's brought the sheep home on his shoulders. He says to all his friends and neighbors, Rejoice with me, I found this sheep. Then verse 7, the application. I say unto you that likewise, in the same manner, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Now, where does the sinner repent? He repents on the earth. But there's joy in heaven. Don't you think that 
when someone gets truly saved, they know about it in heaven? You better believe they do. Jesus said they do. And I say that the friends and neighbors are the people of God. I've heard people quote this. There's, there's joy among the angels, or the angels rejoice. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say the angels rejoice. No, undoubtedly that's true. It says there's joy in the presence, verse 10 of Luke 15. Likewise, I say unto you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Who are in the presence of the angels of God? The glorified ones, the saints. I believe if a sinner gets saved in this church, my dear wife and all the rest of them that are in glory know about it. That's a great thing. There's joy in heaven. I think that's borne out as well, the fact that they know what's going on on the earth. I might be digressing a little here, but I'm enjoying it. If you read Hebrews chapter 11, there's a whole list of the heroes of faith. And there's a general statement at the end, speaking about the fact that time would fail him to tell of all the rest of the saints who overcame by faith. But read on into chapter 12. Wherefore, here's a connection with chapter 11, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Who does he mean we are compassed about? We believers on the earth. We're compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. Who are the cloud of witnesses? They're the people of God who have gone to heaven. Study it. What's this compassing about with a great cloud of witnesses? This is the amphitheater. These are the people all sitting on the seats surrounding the amphitheater. And we're still running the race, which is why the next verse goes on to say, or the next words, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. They have run the race. They're in heaven. They're a cloud of witnesses, and they're watching us running the race. I told someone last night in a conversation, my June is a cheerleader now. What do you mean? It's one of the, one of the cloud of witnesses. Don't believe that? Read it. It's, it's all there. Of course they know what's happening on the earth. And they're not affected by the bad things because they see things as God sees them. They're perfect now. They're perfect. There are no tears in heaven. They're not weeping over bad stuff that's happening on the earth because there are no tears in heaven. But they know about it. And praise God, they are beyond the scorching heat of the sun and we who are saved are beyond it as well. But the Lord is the shepherd. And he becomes the shepherd to the believer in time. It happens in time. The lost sheep is found and brought home in time. And those that are in glory see it. And they rejoice in it. Now we come into the Lord's fold as his sheep by grace. If with time we would develop again John chapter 10. He's the good shepherd that giveth his life for the sheep. And he says, I give unto them eternal life. 
and they shall never perish. The shepherd and his sheep enjoy a unique and intimate relationship. And as I noted in an earlier message, the shepherd is the great protector of his sheep. He looks after them. The wolf and the bear can't get at them. Just like David, when he had the sling, he told his king Saul, I'm well able to take care of Goliath because thy servant went out to the lion and the bear and I slew them with my sling and my smooth stones. He's a type of Christ. And we know that the shepherd is the great protector of the sheep. And he knows them and they know him. It's not that they know about him, they know him. He knows them by name. He calls them by name. They know him and they know his voice and they follow him. And that's the evidence that they are sheep. John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. Another they will not follow. It's clear. If you're following another voice, you're not a sheep. But the picture of the shepherd and the sheep is a picture of absolute security that we have in him. And we see here his leadership and his guidance, his constant companionship, his unfailing care, his sacrificial love. It's all here. The lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. He will be a shepherd to them, is what it means. He cares for them. And it's this shepherd who cares for us here below, and he does, no matter what the devil says, no matter what your own heart might say, oh, the Lord doesn't care for me. The Lord does care for me if I'm his. This is the shepherd. He cares for his sheep. He loves his sheep. And the one who cares for us here below, he's going to be our companion that we delight in for all eternity if we've been saved by his grace in this life here. The sheep are kept by him. They're cared for by him here on the earth. But the same shepherd cares for the sheep in heaven above. That's a lovely thought. He dwells among them. That's what it says there. He dwells among them. I don't know all that this signifies. But if he feeds them, he pastors them, he leads them eternally. It must mean something. I can only guess. I know that can be a dangerous thing to do. But this is some sanctified imagination here. For me, the fact that the Lord is our shepherd. And that he leads them unto waters and so on. It's an indication of our increasing capacity in heaven to learn more and more of what we have in Christ and in his salvation. Again, I was speaking to someone recently about this very thing. My view is that we, when we get to heaven, we do not automatically then become perfect in knowledge. But rather for all eternity, we're continuing to learn more and more of what we have in Christ. More and more of what it is that he did for us in our salvation. That's what it means when he leads them from fountain to fountain. Continually caring. Continually feeding. That's what I get from it anyway. Because if he feeds them, 
the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. He'll be a shepherd to them. That suggests to us an ongoing experience, doesn't it? Keeping on caring for them. Keeping on providing for his sheep for all eternity. Christ is seen with his people in glory, even as the shepherd on earth stays with his flock. You know, the shepherd's psalm, Psalm 23, finishes, doesn't it, with the sheep dwelling with their shepherd in the house of the Lord forever. There's a verse that tells us that the sheep shall go no more out. They're safe and secure, you see. They are in a place of shelter and a place of eternal supply. Tell me this morning, and including this, those that are watching on by means of the internet, are you going there when you leave this old earth? That's the question. Everybody's not going to heaven. They're not. You need to make sure that you're going there. And I trust that you will have the assurance of sins forgiven by trusting Christ. You'll have the assurance then of a home in heaven. You'll know that you'll be with the shepherd and he'll be with you for all the endless ages of eternity. You can know that. You can be absolutely 100% sure of that. Because Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. That means under no circumstances. If you come to him truly by faith, under no circumstances will he say, No, I'll cast you out. No, he will, he will receive you. Remember many years ago, Dr. Cairns, the late Dr. Cairns, preached a tremendous message which was called a saviour for all comers. And he was dwelling on that theme that the Lord will receive all who come unto him. And it's true. It's true. Make your calling and election sure. Make him your shepherd. Become one of his sheep. Realize that you'll never in that instance ever have the hot sun or the scorching heat to light upon you but you'll be sheltered and you'll be supplied everlastingly. May the Lord grant that it will be so. Amen.